Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Change, the ODI podcast where we discuss some of the world's most pressing global issues. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, the chief executive at ODI. So today marks one year since the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. I'm sure you will all recall that 20 years of Afghanistan's occupation by the West were brought to an abrupt end after the Taliban's very swift advance on Kabul in August 2021. The takeover was followed by total disarray, uh, particularly on the international front. You know, we saw a very hurried, shambolic exit of expatriate personnel, um, accompanied by a very small number of Afghan nationals from the country. We saw the disintegration um, across allies who were once united, and we saw the adoption of you know, very short-term humanitarian center solutions that have actually failed to address some of the most critical challenges that Afghans face. Although the fall of Kabul happened in 2021, at ODI we've actually been documenting how the Taliban had been sort of semi-governing parts of Afghanistan for years. We wrote about them monitoring schools, regulating NGO-run clinics, even collecting uh, on state electricity bills. And as the Taliban methodically gained ground in recent years, they coerced and co-opted large swathes of the population that is now living under the rule and pretty much set up a shadow state. So since August last year, we've seen you know, troubling reports from the country, but perhaps not surprising reports. We've heard um, about restrictions on freedom of speech. Um, we've heard about the erosion of the rights of women and girls. And of course, of you know, a devastating economic and food security crisis across the country. But with the war in Ukraine that is really dominating the airwaves and capturing a lot of the international financial assistance, it's actually been tricky to get a clear picture of what is happening in the country and of how things have changed for better or worse after a year of uh, Taliban rule. So in these episodes, we'll really be delving into the current situation in Afghanistan, uh, but we want to do that as seen through the eyes of Afghan women, women who have played key roles in the development of Afghanistan over time, wearing different hats. Um, and we'll also hear their perspective on the role that regional and international partners in particular have been playing and what they should do differently. So to discuss this, I'm really truly privileged to be joined by a fantastic group of Afghan women. Um, with us today, we have Sima Ghani. Um, Sima is a human rights activist. Sima, welcome. Thank you very much, Sarah. Glad to be here. We are delighted to have you. Um, we also have Nargis Nehan. Nargis is the former Minister of Mines, Petroleum and Industries of Afghanistan. Nargis, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Forozan Rasuli, who is a women's rights activist. Forozan, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for this invitation, Sarah. Looking forward to the discussion. Very much our pleasure. So let's um, start the discussion. Um, Afghanistan is incredibly diverse, you know, both socially and culturally. There are stark differences between the deeply conservative areas that have long been under Taliban influence and, of course, the mainly urban, generally more progressive areas that they have recently seized. Um, so, Farazan, I want to start, you know, with you. What changes have you seen unfolding in the past year? especially, you know, across um, this very diverse country. After the fall of the regime of Taliban in 1996, um, 
um, in, in 2001, uh, we saw lots of improvement in the life of the women. Women started joining politics, they were improving and advancing in the field of education. We were receiving scholarships from different countries and there were lots of positive changes in the life of the women. The focus of the international community and everyone was the women. So women developed um, up to a large extent. But unfortunately, after Taliban regained the power in uh, 2001, we have been observing that slowly and gradually women are again becoming invisible. We can't see women on the leadership and even in the middle level and in some fields, even we can't see them at all, uh, such as in politics. Um, we can't see any women, uh, any women political group which is actively working inside the country. We can see the ban on the girls' education. We can see the women facing limitations and on accessing the health services. Similarly, Afghanistan economy has collapsed. There are some miseries which all Afghans are suffering from it, such as the economical issues, the health issues, and the other um, issues in other sectors. But these miseries for the women has doubled. Women are suffering as a human in Afghanistan and then as a woman in Afghanistan. So they are suffering all the miseries twice compared to the uh, men. So everything has changed for the women. We don't have any organization that can specifically focus on the women issues. We don't have any statistics. We don't have an institution that can record the cases of violences against women that can take care of the day-to-day -day, uh, problems that women are facing in Afghanistan. Thanks, Rosanne. You very rightly, you know, focus on uh, particularly the situation of, uh, of women, women and girls. I'd say I'll come back to that because I think there is a lot more that we want to hear about it. Uh, but Sima, maybe I'll ask you, you know, more broadly, how you know the Taliban takeover has uh, um, impacted the country, and, and perhaps you know how, whether that is played out differently across urban areas and, and the provinces. Um, thank you, Sarah. Let me actually start with something else you said earlier. I'm going to touch on that one because you said the occupation of Afghanistan for the last 20 years. We actually don't see the last 20 years of presence of the 48, 49 countries as an occupation. It wasn't like sort of colonizing the country. It was uh, it was something that, you know, the, the, the people, the country, civil society, politicians and everybody felt that they needed help. And so did the international community, of course, put, you know, a step forward to come and help. Naturally, some had, you know, uh, I think, you know, the mentality, of course, is different with some countries being in the country. They came as, you know, thinking occupation, but that's not how we see it. So, so that's one point I'd like to clarify. But coming to your question, um, the governments in Afghanistan have always been very centralized. So the focus has been very central, in the, uh, mainly in Kabul as uh, the capital, but also in the main cities. And even sort of regionally, there are like you know, 34 provinces in the, in the country, but in each region, not all say, you know, say seven or 10 provinces was already sort of uh, autonomously working or at least empowered. It was one province, for example, had more power than the others. So that affects, you know, the economics, social life, um, and, uh, of course, politically, the decisions uh, were made by 
uh, certain individuals that were very powerful in those areas. Um, I mean, the centralization, of course, you know, more than anything affects the economy, uh, uh, particularly that, you know, the last seven, eight years of the last government, Ashraf Ghani's government, he centralized even procurement. So he brought everything to the center. All the decisions were made there. Therefore, no company in the provinces were empowered to apply or bid. And of course, with the corruption and everything else, we a lot of provinces actually lost money. So economically, people were already uh, very worse off even during the previous government. With Taliban coming, I think the additional thing is that even the little money that was coming uh, through projects, through development projects, even that stopped. Uh, or if they had a family member working for the police or the army, he's no longer working there, therefore there's no income. Uh, or if somebody was working with an NGO, a lot of NGOs don't have income anymore. So that's how, you know, their lives are um, impacted. But in terms of women, of course, as Farouzan John mentioned, that's, you know, uh, um, something that, of course, you know, we know we have a very traditional society, but at least it was an option for a, for a woman to work or not work or for the family to allow a woman to study or to work. That option is not there anymore. And that's what's, you know, hurting a lot of people because at least they had the freedom before they don't have the freedom now thanks you know let, let's go a bit deeper on that i mean you know as you say women um have benefited if you want from this uh, sustained international um, attention and um for example you were saying you know there were concerns for the vulnerability of women and girls that were really stemming from the previous records of the taliban's government in in the 90s um we know that over the past um, 10, 20 years, Afghan women have fought an uphill battle for their you know, basic human rights. Um, and actually, when they took power, the Taliban did say that they were committed to upholding the rights of women and girls. Uh, but from what we're hearing, that's clearly not the case. Sima, do you mind elaborating on the reality of the situation? What has really you know, changed and taken away? You're alluding to some jobs not being more I'd like you know to sort of help our audience understand in detail what, what changes have happened over the past year. Well basically I think you know let's just look at a Talib fighter for a young man who was brought up within a very extreme thinking ideological sort of group and every day he was told that these people that are living in the cities they are not believers they're kafirs they're atheists the women have lost their virtues there are no values in the cities and therefore we have to go and take over this government and this country to bring islam to it so a young man grew up with that sort of thinking we should not expect them to be changing overnight basically those fighters should not be left alone in the city they should not be in charge of you know the city policing when i i I went to Afghanistan this year twice, and every time I went, I did not see anyone in a police uniform or proper uh, army uniform, someone educated to stand there and stop my car or when I'm walking or somebody else is walking. It's the same fighter that sort of has spent, you know, 20 years in a mountain, stops you, and the way they talk to you, it's very intimidating. It's a grudge. It's like, you know, you know they want to tell you that, oh, you atheist woman, you used to work there and there with foreigners, and now you're still walking on the streets. But at least they, they hold themselves. All they do is, for example, they look at my driver and, and not very sort of nicely or just uh, with a normal voice or tone asking, who are you or where are you going? with very sort of intimidating voice, who is she? 
where are you going? So it's almost like, you know, you already sort of see, feel that animosity, you know, uh, within them. You know, when they see women on the street, you know, they, they get intimidated themselves because to them it's, it, you know, we we were not Muslim. We were not, you know, because our faces were showing. We were already covered up completely. Afghanistan society has always been very conservative, and particularly since the Mujahideen regime. I, I lived in Afghanistan, or I went to university and school during the communist regime. We did not cover our head. We used to wear jeans, T-shirts, and, and all that. But since the Mujahideen started in 92, since that period... The, the, the dress code has become very conservative, but that's not sufficient for Taliban. So for them, you know, to convince even at the senior leadership level, if they want to accept the changes of the last 20 years, they feel bound to uh, comply with what they've been telling their fighters for 20 years. That's one of the things they're stuck with because they can't bring the changes they want. The other thing is their own internal, you know, uh, uh, issues. Uh, the Kandahar group wants one thing. For example, they want the schools open. Haqqani group doesn't want it. And then within each group, for example, they have their own uh, leaders disconnect and different opinions. Uh, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs every day announces that, you know, they, he wants schools open, but he's not the one in charge. Or, or a deputy minister from somewhere else or a minister. They, okay, they're all acting, by the way. Let me just sort of, you know, reiterate for those that haven't heard, Afghanistan doesn't have a government. It has, it has an acting system and it's not a, a government, a fully functioning government. So they are sort of stuck with their ideologies of the last, you know, 40 years. And, you know, they don't know how to change that. And that's where the difficulty comes. Thanks. That's a really interesting uh, perspective, you, you know, painting a picture of uh, an administration that is very much um, confused in this array, not really led. Nargis, do you want to add um, 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 your perspective you know, to this and how you see the restrictions that have been put in place over the past year? Um, yes, to add up on what uh, uh, Sima John and Fruzan John have said, um, so far in the last one year, uh, the Taliban have issued 33 decrees for restricting women uh, uh, life. Uh, for example, as you know, uh, they have banned girls from attending secondary uh, school. Um, they have removed women civil servants from different government institutions where we had 27% of the civil servants uh, uh, women. Uh, they also uh, do not allow uh, women to have businesses. So as a result of that, more than 3,000 women-owned businesses are being shut down and went, went to bankruptcy. Uh, women are not in public life and politics anymore. Women are not part of the discussion in the country anymore. And they have basically uh, made uh, men in charge of women uh, at home and as well as in the society in terms of you know, like where if women are wearing tight clothes, if they go out, the warning is actually coming to the male member of the family that you know, why you're not looking out after her, why you're not you know, warning her that she should wear proper clothes. And for them, proper clothes is basically burqa, or you have to wear a baya, which is basically not an Afghan traditional clothes. It's coming from uh, from, from Middle East. Uh, so as a result of that, the gender-based violence has gone really high in Afghanistan. And let's do not forget that Afghanistan is already a highly conservative society. Even many of in many of the areas, when we were highlighting participation of women as uh, achievement in Afghanistan, it was still much more below in comparison to many developing countries. So today, when women are actually returning back to Stone Age 
with all these decrees the Taliban are issuing and distracting their life. Thanks, Nargis. Uh, that's uh, yeah, a, a fairly bleak picture that we're hearing um, all around. Forozan, uh, uh, Sima alluded to the fact that the Taliban, you know, believe that these restrictions um, are, in a way, you know, in uh, uh, in line with the, um, the prescriptions of Islam. But are they, you know, are these restrictions to women accessing their basic rights really based on Islam? Um, so first of all, I would like to say that. Um, Afghanistan is a very diverse country. Traditionally, uh, we can uh, we can see there are lots of tribes existing there, and of course, um, it's a country with majority of Muslims. And they all, when we say that Afghanistan is a country where there are culture cultures and traditions, and there are restrictions, but um, it differs. It differs how we define it. For example, from many, many years ago, in some countries, uh, sorry, in some provinces, when you talk about hijab, they consider hijab like a black wheel. In some of the provinces, they might prefer burqa, but in many provinces, they just prefer a decent cloth where your body is not exposed to something, but there is no restriction on the color or on the shape of the dress or everything, and many other things. So. Um, it depends how we define the hijab or abaya. But unfortunately, the problem with the Taliban is that they are inflicting you to follow the certain rules that they are uh, creating for the society and especially for the women. And they, they want to impose that, whether you're happy or not, whether Islam says this way or that way, but they will translate or interpret those rules in their own way. And they're expecting you to, to just obey them and um, even they are not ready to accept uh, the comments, the advices from different religious scholars. For example, they have been saying that they are forming the base of their current regime on Islamic uh, values. But if you see, for example, banning the girls from school above sixth grade, it's there is nothing Islamic in that um that that order that they are that decree that they are inflicting on the people and they are imposing on everyone to just wait until they resolve this issue somehow they are in they are promoting the uh the bad traditions that we have been fighting for years and years and even they accept it as bad tradition but on the other hand they are doing and they are promoting the same thing by uh, uh, by keeping the women at home about sixth grade and not letting them to get education. So uh, they are contradicting against the uh, the base, the Islam that they are saying it's the base of their rule and their regime. But unfortunately, they are contradicting the same thing that they are claiming for it. Um, similarly, uh, if we see in the past. Even in some of the provinces where where girls were not let to uh, go to school, like some of the families, I wouldn't say provinces, because again, even in different provinces, we have different people. Some of the families, they allow their girls. Some of the families, I think even that percentage who are not allowing their girls based on the tradition or something, that's very small number. Majority of them, uh, they had their own problems and they were referring those problems again and again to the government in the past. I remember I was talking to a woman in Kandahar province of Afghanistan. She was a women rights activist, 
but her 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 girl was sitting at home and when i asked her that why are you not uh, letting your girl to get education she said that there are lots of security issues there are lots of warlords who are kidnapping the girls on their way to the school so they were afraid to let their girls to go to school because of those security issues so we need a government that can resolve that can address those issues not make them as an excuse or, or name it as a bad tradition and then keep the girls at home so i believe the problems are not identified and not defined and the proper way rather they are uh, depicted to the world as a bad tradition but in reality it's something different it's something else um so yes uh, islam um, is not the way it is depicted right now in afghanistan i believe we have lots and lots of other muslim countries and you can see in none of them you would see the women are banned from attending school about 6th grade there are many muslim countries but we can see women as prime minister we can see women as the um in in different leadership roles in the government and in the society but it's it's completely afghanistan unfortunately has become a very bad example to the whole world um so that's that's not what islam is saying in fact it's contradicting with islam thanks for rosanda as um very clear and very powerful i, I want to go back to some of what sima was alluding to in terms of how much the economy of afghanistan has suffered since the taliban takeover i mean public services of course particularly health and education had been heavily dependent on aid programs um for many years uh, and of course we've seen international sanctions and also the freezing of afghan foreign exchange reserves um now this is, uh, let me come to you what, what do you see has um the main repercussions of the shift in international engagement you know after they left afghanistan so as you uh, as we are following the um, uh, statements made by Furuzanjan Simajan and myself you can see that for Afghans it was and still is a disaster uh, but it was a, it, uh, it's also a disaster for the international community themselves um, let's remind ourselves that why the international community intervened and came to Afghanistan in the first place uh, on one hand to fight terrorism but then on the other hand also to help Afghans as their allies to have an open society where men and women can enjoy equal rights and opportunities where we can have justice where we can have liberty and where we can actually practice democracy these are the values that all of us as member of the united nation are are uh, are, are interested and are actually uh, uh, are, are working and struggling for uh, and as you see today, uh, our, the whole world is dividing into two very clear uh, parts. On one part, you have societies that they are open and you have allies that they are working for that. And then on the other hand, you have closed societies that they are becoming more extreme and they want to, they want to suppress each and every one. So we believe that for, five, for having democracy, civil society, um, vibrant media, we were struggling for an open society. Uh, so for the international community, by uh, handing over Afghanistan to the Taliban, especially the US, basically they contradicted all the values that they have been struggling and they have been fighting for. 
And what has been the most uh, disaster that they kept on saying that uh, we went to we went to Afghanistan for fighting terrorism, and our fight is over with uh, Osama bin Laden being killed. And then what happens after a few months? We find Al Zawahiri in the heart of uh, diplomatic areas of uh, uh, Kabul. So that says a lot about uh, uh, the, the international community's lack of uh, understanding of the situation, and also trying to somehow in like a simply oversimplify the whole process of peace process in Afghanistan, and also believing in all those lies that Taliban have been telling them in the. Uh, last two to three years uh, during the Han negotiation. So we saw what happened as a result of that. Now what's happening that Afghanistan or to Afghan people are totally suppressed. We uh, we are going through crisis, crisis after crisis. The international community must be very shocked and they should wait for more shocks coming from Afghanistan because it's not only the, the Al-Qaeda, but the, the, the Daesh and all other extreme groups are now very active uh, in Afghanistan. So the, the countries that right now are benefiting from all the investment that are made in Afghanistan in the last 20 years are Iran, China, and most probably Russia. Uh, I'm sure you're following the news that every day we're having delegations from China coming to Afghanistan, from Iran, visiting Afghanistan and uh, discussing about uh, uh, mining uh, concessions that they're interested to get and about different economic uh, projects that they want to discuss and they want to uh, sign off with the de facto government. I'll want to come back to what you say about uh, um, Afghanistan's um, sort of, if you want, mineral resources and how they're being used by others. But first, I wanted to ask you what has been the impact of the US decisions to withhold Afghan economic assets? Because we haven't quite touched on, on that. And obviously, that dominated well, uh, at one point. Yeah, on, uh, actually, as a first of all, uh, that has restricted uh, uh, I NGOs and especially US based uh, organizations to. Uh, to send money or to have any activities inside Afghanistan, because legally they cannot do that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, because the, uh, the the asset is being frozen, uh, that has uh, impacted the econo economy and especially the banking sector of Afghanistan. I'm sure you're aware that still uh, we have the banking sector uh, becoming a little bit functional inside Afghanistan, but still transactions are not happening between Afghanistan and other countries, which has become very difficult. And as a result of that, that has impacted very badly the economic sector of Afghanistan. Uh, so all these things have been uh, 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 have been impacting us negatively. But then on the other hand, uh, the decision that they made uh, for dividing the asset between the victims of 9-11 uh, 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 um, and as well as the Afghan people, that was uh, absolutely illegal decision because the money was deposited in one of the U.S. banks by the Central Bank of Afghanistan. And a legitimate government has the authority of making a decision about that money. Nobody else has that uh, authority legally. And then on top of that, they cannot give compensation to the victims of 9-11 from poor Afghan people uh, money because we are also victims of the terrorism. So how do you get in like money of the poor people and compensate uh, the victim of 9-11? Well, actually, we know very well the people that they uh, engineered behind all those attacks were not, yes, they their base was in Afghanistan, but they were not Afghans. Uh, so all these you know, replications are there, and we hope that uh, they would not get into the final decision in terms of division of our assets. 
Sima, what do you think international regional partners should do to appropriately support the people of Afghanistan? I mean, we've heard a, a mixed bag of you know interaction over the, the past year and actually some being really detrimental to, to people in Afghanistan. Well, there's, there are two uh, sides of it. Number one, I think politically um, there has to be some interventions. Uh, because, you know, I think, you know, there is also a confusion with the Western world on how to work with Taliban or how to treat them. Um, the very senior levels, they, know the, they do not get involved, maybe for the right reasons, fine. So they send their juniors to talk and then Taliban sort of ignore the juniors that they're sitting with. Uh, I think, you know, that's more important than anything else. You know, humanitarian aid is already going there and being implemented to... Uh, the UN agencies that's working uh, partially um, okay-ish, I suppose. You know, there are lots of issues uh, with the UN costs and everything else. You know, it's a, UN agencies uh, are very happy. It's kind of, you know, they finally got what they wanted in, in a country like Afghanistan. They, they are in charge of all the money and, and, and they can decide where to distribute and where not to. And they work through their partners, uh, which is local NGOs, international NGOs, but mainly international NGOs. Uh, what has who has lost in between is the uh, local people. The the small civil society, the smaller NGOs, um, has lost you know um, its uh, support because donors are not there. There is no uh, international organization based in Afghanistan. Specifically, specifically, I'm referring to diplomatic uh, offices where the decisions of support and grants and money and funding was uh, being made. Things have to be corrected at the top. I think money can be sent and, you know, there are ways to work with a local civil society, with a community, with small NGOs or through UN and others. But what do we, how do we address and what do we do with what people have to live with? It's not, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, feed uh, an entire nation with some wheat from WFP. There has to be other things. There has to be, you know, the system has to change. There has to be a system of governance in place, and that's not yet. And and I, you know, I bring everybody's attention to more at that level. Um, if the if it's the civil society of this country that hears me, I want them to push their government to to push Taliban to push through. Uh, maybe there are other partners that they can push through. I know there's sort of this discussion and uh, kind of a, a wish that maybe we should talk to other Muslim countries and you know push those Muslim countries to talk to Taliban. But there have been a lot of uh, announcements uh, from those countries regarding girls' schools uh, that you know they have to be open. But Taliban haven't listened to that, so they have to be. We have to find other pressures. And that's where I think, you know, we need to start with humanitarian aid is needed and that has to continue. But we should think of proper economic empowerment. And it, it, there are ways also to do that without involving Taliban, without giving money through the government, uh, working through the community, through small NGOs, small companies, uh, but making sure that, you know, it, it's sort of going at grassroots level and, and helping them. But I'm again going to emphasize at higher level, uh, uh, fixing a government or setting up a government for us first, you know, basically, you know, and I'm I'm sort of saying uh, setting up a government because you know the international community together destroyed it, fifteenth <laughs> uh, of August last year by leaving us alone completely, and it was kind of handing over to to the Taliban. Now they have to come and help us fix it. 
That's an interesting proposition. Of course, a lot has changed, and you know, as uh, Nargis was uh, already alluding to, this has you know created this, the withdrawal has created an opportunity for other countries, you know, jostling for geopolitical power, particularly China and Iran, you know, to benefit from an association um, with Afghanistan, including um, in terms of having access to its vital, you know, mineral, mineral resources that are so important for you know all kind of um, industries, you know, particularly for the tech industries, but also beyond. Nargis, you were already talking about this. I think it'd be interesting to hear more about how you know, the Taliban are engaging you know, with these countries that are trying to um, obviously exploit the resources of Afghanistan. And where does um, really this um, lead you know, Afghanistan? Because obviously um, these countries are trying to uh, leverage this opportunity to increase their influence. Um, well, as you know that... Um, um, uh, the mineral resources in every country can be a source of prosperity, but they could also uh, they also have the risk of becoming a source of conflict and stability in a country. So in Afghanistan, unfortunately, uh, the mineral resources have become a great uh, source of uh, instability. Uh, before fifteenth uh, August, when we had the uh, Republic uh, government of Afghanistan. The Taliban were engaged in uh, illegal uh, mining of mineral resources all around the country, and the minerals were actually one of the main sources of income for them. Uh, but still, things were pretty much under control because for them, transportation was uh, was difficult, and they were focusing more on the extraction of uh, gemstone because transportation of that and smuggling of that was easier for them. Um, and then on top of now, what has happened that. Uh, Taliban has begun to legalize all those uh, 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 illegal activities. So they are giving actually now uh, licenses to the companies that they go and, and very unprofessionally, without any technical capacity, uh, extract those uh, mineral resources. I'm sure uh, uh, you, you might be following the news about um, Afghanistan coal, that now they are being exported to Pakistan. But it's not only coal. We are, ha we are having um, uh, marble being exported to, um, to um, Iran and from Iran to China. We have talc of Afghanistan being exported. We have chromite being illegally extracted and exported, gemstone, um, all these other uh, and many other mineral resources. So these companies, they don't make any investment. They don't have any community development programs. Uh, they don't take into account the implications of the environment, the water management, when they are extracting these mineral resources. Uh, so it's becoming more often like a disaster because communities are not benefiting at all. And these companies are actually exploiting communities in terms of giving them very low and minimum wage and doing these mining activities on them without providing them any benefit, any incentive, and any security. And then all of the, none of them are getting processed now in Afghanistan because even the factories that they were established before uh, previously in Afghanistan they are not most of them are not functional anymore because of the lack of electricity in Afghanistan. So all these uh, mineral resources are getting extracted uh, uh, unprofessionally, and then all of them are now legally uh, approved by the Taliban. They get exported to Pakistan, Iran, and through these two countries, mostly they end up uh, being um, end up landing in 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 China. So that is the situation, and. Um, 
And interestingly, I, I will, I'm still in contact with some of my colleagues in the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum. So they were telling me that, yes, legally, we are asked that we should go ahead and issue all these contracts. And we had computerized the cadastral system of the ministry for uh, making sure that we keep a digital copy of all mining contracts. They're also uploading all these mining contracts um, on that system. And um, it was being managed and administered by a Norwegian uh, organization. They also contacted me and they said, what do you think? Should we shut down that system or we should maintain it? I said, please maintain that system and let's encourage them that they put all these contracts in that system. So at least we can have record of how many contracts they have issued, what, in which areas they have issued, to which companies they have issued, and how much end of the day have produced. Because later on, that will help us to see like how much revenue they have been able to uh, generate from the mineral resource in Afghanistan. And uh, for the big, uh, these are the small scale and medium scale uh, mining uh, contracts. For the bigger ones, such as copper, uh, gold, and others, uh, there are a lot of Chinese companies visiting, in Af visiting Afghanistan, trying to build partnership with some local companies um, who are having good connections with the Taliban. And several of the family members of the Taliban uh, cabinet, uh, uh, the de facto government cabinet ministers, have established um, mining companies and they are coming with joint venture with these Chinese companies and trying to get a new concession so that they can start their activities. Uh, my main concern is that the infrastructure that we have invested and the West actually invested in the last 20 years, building so many roads, constructing so many bridges and focusing on the power uh, uh, and electricity in Afghanistan, we can see that now all of them are handed over to China, actually, after 20 years, that they can use all those infrastructure and connectivity to come to Afghanistan and exploit our resources. Thank you so much, Nargis. Um, unfortunately, we're almost at time. So I, I just want to have a really quick exchange to get your sense, you know, what is the outlook for peace and stability in Afghanistan um, and what international partners can do to help. For Rosanna, I'll start with you. Uh, thank you so much. So I would say that Afghanistan should not be forgotten because in the past, once Afghanistan was forgotten by everyone and we saw what was uh, the result of that, what it led to. So we don't want to repeat the, the bad history again. And therefore, we really need to observe the situation in Afghanistan, have our intervention, um, and we should uh, ensure that we are standing with the people of Afghanistan. And um, otherwise, it would not only affect the security inside Afghanistan, but it can also affect the regional and international security. So uh, we really need to stand with Afghan. That's very clear. Seema. Uh, thank you, Sarah. I think, you know, we have to remember that Afghanistan problem is a global problem. It's not a uh, solely affecting our people. As Frozanjan touched it, we, nobody has forgotten what happened 9-11. And it's not Afghan people that are doing it. Al-Zawahiri was an Afghan found inside Kabul last week together with his family and everybody living there for several months. So we have to remember that, or, or we meaning, you know, we uh, as lot in this group, we remember it's the decision makers, the politicians that have to remember that, you know, but we need the, the advanced, the civil, the real uh, first world, the Western world to be advising, helping, and what the country needs is a 
proper government, a joint government, joint meaning, you know, representative of the people, not one political group and not one ideology. In terms of the humanitarian, I would like to touch on the fact that I was, you know, saying that, okay, help is coming and all that. Monitoring system is needed because of corruption, because of the, you know, taxing and you know, the other issues, the skimming that's happening in the country by either, you know, the de facto authority or, or by everybody else with the corruption and everything, the history that we have. Therefore, I, I strongly recommend monitoring and with the civil society, the Afghan civil society involved in it. Uh, so more talks, more discussions and the international uh, community getting involved uh, more directly to change things in the country. Thank you. Thanks, Sima. And last but not least, Nargis. A um, couple of points that I also would like to add is that uh, the international community should stop oversimplifying the very complicated situation of Afghanistan. They think that by talking to the Taliban, convincing Taliban to opening uh, uh, schools, and by having uh, a kind of representative government where the others would be coming and serving only as tokens would not resolve our problem. It will just like it may help us to hide the iceberg for sometimes, but it will not help us in the long term. So it's important that we understand the complexity of the situation. Uh, every one of us were expecting the Taliban that they would change, they would come and have a political settlement. And they will be part of a government, uh, the system that would already be there and would hold them to account. But we actually, what happened that right now, they're fully in, uh, in control of Afghanistan. And we saw that under, under their control, of, uh, just in a few months, Afghanistan has turned to safe havens for the terrorist groups. Uh, so we have to understand that, you know, how we are dealing with the situation. Are we actually helping Taliban to, to meet few of the criteria that the international community put in place for them so that they can get recognition and support of the international community? Or we are coming with a mechanism to help Afghan people. Mutual accountability is very much important. This time, it's important that Afghans come together and we decide the political order, the roadmap to peace, stability, and development for the country. And then we have support of the international community and our partners and allies to achieve that and realize that. You cannot fight terrorism, you cannot fight extremism by politicking uh, terrorism and by politicking uh, extremism. We should seriously understand it, we should seriously fight it. And that is uh, that need requires a strategic patience and vision to do it. Thank you so much, Sima Nargis, for Rosanne. What an incredibly insightful, you know, rich discussion you've really, you know, taken us on um, a journey of what the situation in Afghanistan is today and what is needed. Uh, well, I think at ODI we've been working closely with partners in Afghanistan for more than 20 years. And so we will continue to work with all of you to amplify the voices of Afghans and to push you know, international partners to engage in a meaningful way, you know, as we said, you know, in a way that goes beyond the punditry, the oversimplifications, um, as we heard from you, um, really fully embracing the complexity of Afghanistan. Um, I think that the so-called international community really owes it to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening.
I really hope that today's conversation um, helped you understand the situation in Afghanistan uh, better than you know perhaps Western media um, often um, present uh, to you and uh, if you the, the, some of the solutions that you know we hear about as to how we can uh, move forward. Um, remember to subscribe to the show. We are on all your favorite podcast providers and do you know share your feedback on what we can do better or differently. We'll be back in September for another episode. Um, for now, a warm goodbye to all.